So this morning, uh, as we look at this very small passage, I'd like to look at um, just three things that can help us understand this commandment and how we're to relate to them. First off, we're going to look at the life of a name, and then the limitation of self-righteousness. And finally, we'll look at the liberty from vanity. And so as we, as we start to look at this command, we're going to ask ourselves Shakespeare's old question. What's in a name? Right? What's in a name? Are names really that important? And then as we read this verse, as, as the, uh, the NIV translators have translated it for us, we have to understand, well, what does it mean to misuse a name? How is it possible to misuse a name? And even more confusingly, if we were to translate this command a little more literally, a little more roughly, then we'd have to say that it it says, don't lift up the name of the Lord your God in vanity or emptiness or falseness. Well, what does it mean to lift up a name to begin with? And what does it mean to lift it up in vanity or falseness? Really what we're trying to figure out is what is the big deal with names? Wasn't Juliet right when she said, a rose is a rose. It's going to smell just as sweet no matter what we call it. You guys remember that, that play, Romeo and Juliet? And she's telling, she's telling Romeo, right, listen, I know that your family is having a feud with my family, but if we just change our names, everything could be great. And, of course, we all know how that ended, and things were not great. So we have to admit that names have power. Names have incredible meaning. And even in our, in our culture now, Names can become synonymous with events or ideas or concepts. So many of you uh, sports fans will probably remember last year when LeBron James become, became a free agent. You remember this announcement? And then he announced that he was going to play for the Miami Heat. And pretty much the entire city of Cleveland, as I understand it, hates LeBron James now, right? Like, they, they were so beyond disappointed and upset. I mean, they were just livid. And, and the majority owner of the Cleveland Browns team, Dan Gilbert, uh, he, he was so enraged. He also owns this sports memorabilia company. And in what has to be the nerdiest act of juvenile retaliation, he priced all of the LeBron James posters at $17.41. And he did that because 1741 was the year that Benedict Arnold was born. Okay. Benedict Arnold was, was the American, you guys remember third grade history, right? This is the guy you're allowed to hate as an American, okay? He was the American general in the Revolutionary War that sold all these secrets to the Red Coast, to the British. And, I mean, 200 years later, and this guy's name is still synonymous with traitor. Names have incredible power. And in ancient cultures, names had way more significance than even they do today. And, and kind of the correlation for, for a lot of ancient names and the ideas behind them Today, it's almost like nicknames. Nicknames that we have for one another are kind of cheap echoes for the way that names carried uh, ideas and descriptions of persons in ancient cultures. And so throughout the scriptures, we see that the name of God becomes synonymous with God. And in this particular verse, the, the term Yahweh, which is the name that is used here in this verse... This is, this is God's covenant name. It's his personal name that he gave to his people. When he entered into promises with them and said that he would be their God, he gave them this name to call him. And this name had incredible meaning. When God passed in front of Moses as he was delivering these laws to Moses to carry out to the people, he declared his name to Moses and he said, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, 
slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That description of God, that he gives himself to Moses, in the context of him declaring his name, that that little description right there is the most quoted description in the Bible. All the other biblical authors look back on this time when God told Moses his name and who he was, and they continue to ruminate on it. It is one of the most uh, repeated concepts throughout the entire Christian scripture. And throughout the Old Testament, God has given many names that are used to describe who he is. They're used to describe his character, to tell us about how he acts in the world. He's called the Almighty. He's called the Everlasting God, the Lord of Peace, the Lord of Hosts, the Most High God, and the Shepherd. And all of these names, all of these descriptions are pointing us back to who God is, to who this particular God is, the true God, Yahweh. And, and the name itself, the name Yahweh, came to signify such power and holiness and presence that there are legends of, of Jewish scribes that would actually, as they're copying out the Old Testament or, or their scriptures, they would stop what they were doing when they came to this name. And they would go wash themselves and wash their clothes and come back and write out the name of God. That was how seriously they took it. And in in fact, the the entire nation of Israel became so concerned with keeping this very command, not misuse this personal name of God, that they stopped using it altogether. They would refer to God simply as Adonai, which which is why in our English Bibles we translate that name as Lord now. Or they understood that the name of God had such power and significance that they actually referred to God as Hashem, the name. They would just say, he is the name, and they wouldn't even say his name because they didn't want to bring down a curse upon themselves. They understood that the name of God had incredible weightiness, incredible power. And the thing about names having power and weightiness is that to have association with those names actually brings with it um, a whole array of responsibilities as well as benefits. So if, if you're a part of a company or, or a country club or a group of people, the fact that you're associated with that name can get you places, right? So for a short while, uh, I worked in the radio industry. And the station that I worked for was doing this, uh, this big promotion. They were uh, basically inviting listeners to come down to win a chance to see uh, a movie premiere early, like an early release, kind of an early screening. And so I wasn't working the event, but I decided to go down with my friends to see if we could get in to see this movie. Well, I figured maybe a couple dozen people would show up to this thing, but we got there, and the line was huge. There was like a couple hundred people that had turned out waiting for a chance to see this movie. And I was just going to have to wait in line with them, and I figured there's no way we're going to get in, right? And there was like middle management from this big theater corporation that were there, and they had all of their, you know, their little security guys with the walkie-talkies and stuff. They were all checking this line because they wouldn't allow any cell phones or cameras or recording devices in to this early release. So I was, there was no way I was going to be able to sneak in, and there's no way if I waited in line that I'd be able to get into the movie. So uh, I'm not proud of this, by the way, okay? <laughs> but I, I, I spotted the girl in charge. Uh, she was the, the film rep for the distributing company. And I said, hey, you know, I, I'm on air with this radio station, and here I am, and, you know, I wanted to see the movie. And she's like, oh, great, yeah. And before I could even, like, say, please, could I get in, 
She ushers me past all the security guards. And we go into the theater, and she just says, okay, how many seats should we rope off for you and your friends? Do you need some refreshments or anything? All because I dropped the name. All I said was, I'm, I'm with the company, right? Of course, five minutes before the film starts, she hands me a sheet of paper and says, I'm sorry, this is handwritten. I hope you can read my handwriting because you have to do all these announcements in front of all these people that you don't know. And I realized that not only are there perks, but there are responsibilities that come with being associated with the name. We're told in the Old Testament that the people of Israel were called by the name of God. When he brought them out of Egypt and made covenants with them, they became his people and they became associated with his name. And being associated with the name of God carries with it a great responsibility to not misuse it. And as we try to understand what it means to not misuse the name of God, often what we do is we try to limit our understanding of this command. We try to limit what God is actually getting at because what we're doing is we're trying to promote our own self-righteousness. We're trying to make ourselves feel better. See, if we, if we come to something like the Ten Commandments with the assumption that our moral identity can be, can be built and securely based on our ability to keep certain commands, then what we're going to naturally start doing is, is limiting the meaning of the commands in, in such a way that we can actually fulfill them. Because if they're really broad and really difficult and almost limitless, then there's no way that we can actually fulfill them and have self-righteousness. So just in our own minds, we start to kind of put limitations around what God actually said. And then we surround ourselves with other people who think like that. And suddenly we have these completely different interpretations that are usually cultural, that, that help us feel better about who we are. And self-righteousness is extremely limiting because it's a lie based upon another lie. The first lie of self-righteousness is that we're not really that bad off. We're actually fairly good people. And the second lie is that even when we do misstep or make a mistake or mess up a little bit, we can overcome that by, by kind of doing something better or, or doing better next time. We end up treating our own moral life like a video game. So if we get off track and, and do something wrong in the game and we, you know, die, well, we're just going to come back, right? We might have to start over a little bit. We might have to take a few steps back, but we can always overcome. This is the lie of, of self-righteousness, of self-justification. And what we end up doing is we gloss over things that we've done wrong. We act like they're not actually that bad. And then we narrow our categories so that we can fulfill the requirements that have been placed upon us. In the case of this commandment before us, I think there are a couple ways that we've tried to do that uh, pretty successfully uh, in the way that we've tried to limit the meaning of this command. And, and one of those ways is, is kind of an um, evangelical, conservative Christian subculture thing. And the other one is, is a more historically, broadly Protestant thing. So the first one, we kind of have this idea in conservative Christianity that this command is talking about uh, cursing. It's talking about profanity. It's talking about using the name of God as a profanity or as a curse word. And so we cleverly remind our friends that God's last name isn't damn it. Right? That, that's what we do. Okay? When, when I was growing up, uh, many of my church friends and I were encouraged to actually confront non-Christians that we worked with or that we went to school with, whenever they would use the word God as a curse word, we would actually be told to ask them, could you not use the Lord's name in vain? That's very offensive to me. Um, I'm not here to comment on whether that is a very good way to go about living out your Christian life or not, but suffice it to say, this is a very, very limited understanding 
of what this command means. In fact, in ancient Israel, this interpretation wouldn't have even been on the radar. They were a theocracy. To use God's name as a curse word would be like committing suicide. It was completely pointless. It would, it would have to be the stupidest thing anyone in Israel could possibly do is to use God's name as a curse word. We, however, live in a, in a secular, very pluralistic society. So if you're going to be upset about people using the word God as a curse word, you might want to at least start by asking them, which God are they talking about? Right? Because it's not a guarantee that they're even talking about your God. And honestly, there, there are probably very, very few people in our culture who are intentionally asking God to damn someone or something with a full-orbed understanding of what that actually means. I have to assume most people in our world are not that hateful. I, I just don't think that many people are actually thinking it through. And I'm not saying that we should all just blankly, you know, start using it as a curse word and not worry about it. In fact, uh, someone once said, when people take God's name like that and when they're angry or when something goes wrong, Imagine if, if your friend started using your name like that. Okay, so imagine, you know, Lindsay's in the kitchen and something breaks and she goes, Steve! And I come in, I'm like, I'm here to help, what can I do? And she's like, no, I, didn't, I don't want any help, I'm just, I'm just upset. It's ludicrous. However, to think that if we can avoid that sort of profanity, this very narrow band of language... If we think that avoiding that is actually fulfilling this command, we are sorely mistaken. Sorely mistaken. Now, historically, one of the other ways that this command has been limited is kind of throughout um, the Christian world, uh, especially several hundred years ago, this command was seen largely to deal with taking oaths in public, especially in legal settings. And so some early Protestants decided, you know, we think this command actually prohibits us from swearing in the name of God under any circumstances. And so they, they wouldn't take oath of office or in legal settings or anything like that. Other early Protestants would say, no, this actually is the basis for a realistic society that can function. If you have people that actually believe in some sort of God and then they swear to tell the truth in his name, they better follow through. They better follow through. And so, nothing again, nothing wrong with this implication. This is, this is a correct implication of this command. But if we think... If you're thinking to yourself, yeah, you know, I've never, I've never been president of the United States. I've never been in court and, and, you know, put the hand on the Bible and hand up, which, this way, and sworn, then I'm good, right? Because I've never actually taken the Lord's name in vain or misused the name of the Lord because I haven't sworn an oath with his name. Or if I have, I haven't broken it. But if you think that that is fulfilling this command, you would also be sorely mistaken. I think if we were able to take a poll this morning to kind of show us how we think about this command. I think we could demonstrate this pretty easily. If I, if I were to tell you, okay, we've got three groups of people, and we're going to vote on which one we think is, is the most guilty of misusing the name of the Lord or, or taking the Lord's name in vain, I think it would be pretty telling how we would respond. Let's say group one is maybe uh, celebrities or comedians, okay, that, that are maybe a little more vulgar than we would like. They, they probably use profanity, okay. Let's say maybe there's a Woody Allen Okay, or Chris Rock, uh, for you kids out there, we'll, we'll throw Dane Cook into the mix, okay? All right, anyone? Nobody, all right. Let's say group two is going to be the perjurers, the people that have sworn in the name of God to tell the truth in a legal setting, and then they lied, okay? So we've got Barry Bonds in this one, maybe Bill Clinton. Group three. Group three is going to be preachers 
and religious spokesmen. And for our purposes this morning, we'll, we'll throw in a few guys. We'll, we'll have Joel Osteen in there, maybe Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson. And just for giggles, we'll put in Fred Phelps, Harold Camping. Some of us are immediately thinking, okay, it's, it's the vulgar comedians. It's the, it's the profanity guys, right? These are the ones that have been misusing the name of the Lord because they, they use it in their jokes and they're always cursing and all of this sort of thing. Others, others of us that maybe have a bit more of a legal mindset are going to think, no, it's clearly the perjurers. The perjurers are the ones who swore in the name of God to actually do something, and they failed to do it. But if you were to look at your, your contemplation quotes this morning, and if Joy Davidman and, and Alan Redpath are right, then this, the first two groups are really the least of our worries. Joy Davidman says, Many churchgoers think of the third commandment as meant primarily to forbid casual profanity. Yet casual profanity is perhaps the least of our offenses against it. And it's as if Alan Redpath picks right up where she was going, and he says the hypocrisy of the church is far worse than the profanity of the street. The blasphemy of the pew is a more insidious form of evil than the blasphemy of the slum. Leaders of the church who claim the name of Jesus are perhaps the guiltiest group of people in regard to this command. To lift up the name of God and claim to speak for him is an incredibly weighty thing to do. And believe me when I say, this is not the conclusion that I wanted to reach this morning. As I've been studying this over the past couple weeks and, and kind of thinking about all of the wider implications of this command. And I found it very informative and very interesting. And I've realized that my self-justification machine is, is alive and humming. Because as I began to see even that this command isn't just talking about profanity or it's not just talking about perjury, and I, and I kind of saw the wider implications, I still kept pointing the finger at everybody else. I mean, guys like Fred Phelps are easy targets. Picketing funerals, with some of the most hateful slogans imaginable, claiming to speak the truth of God's hate? Obviously, this guy is misusing the name of God. Harold Camping, it's not too hard to point the finger at that guy either. How many times are you going to inaccurately predict the rapture? How many people are you going to lead astray to actually sell all of their belongings and you leave them so destitute and disillusioned because you claimed to speak for God? It didn't really take me that long to turn the gun on Jerry Falwell or Pat Robertson. I mean, to have the audacity to claim that God is the one who caused 9-11, God is the one who made those storms come on Haiti or New Orleans because of his hatred of a particular group of people, his anger at a particular sin or a particular person. How do you have the audacity to claim something like that? Even Joel Osteen, who is leading with his, you know, Mr. Smiley persona, leading thousands of people to believe that Jesus simply wants them to be healthy and wealthy. And if they would just give to the ministry, then they would have all of their dreams come true. It was so easy for me to point a gun at all of these men. And as I was picking them off like fish in a barrel, it was as if the third commandment took the gun out of my hands this week and pointed it straight at me.
how flippantly do I stand up and claim to speak for the creator of the universe? How quickly do I justify myself at the expense of condemning other people? And to be honest, if my, if my thought process had stopped here this week, I would never have climbed these steps. It's too frightening. It actually takes my breath away. It's so scary. And in, in case the penny hasn't dropped yet, the gun is not just pointed at me. It's pointed at all of us. All of us are chronic self-justifiers. Whether we're religious or not actually makes no difference. Religion simply, put, simply puts another face on the same issue. We're all trying to justify ourselves. And all of those attempts, all of our attempts at self-righteousness to make ourselves feel better, to make ourselves right, are actually in direct contradiction to this command. What we do when we attempt self-justifications, we're actually saying that the name of Jesus is empty, that it has no power over us. For those of you that are not a part of the church, you're saying, listen, I've never really claim to speak for God. I, I, I don't even know if he exists. You might not be saying wrong things about who God is because you might not be saying anything about who God is. But if his existence is real, then the emptiness that comes along with refusing to call on him could eventually swallow you up. And if you are a part of the church, you have taken on the name of Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about In Colossians 3, that everything that we say, everything that we do is associated with that name. We are to do it in the name of Christ. And I don't know about you, but I say and do a lot of things that are not worthy of being associated with Jesus. We have all fallen so completely short of this command because what this command is getting at is that with every breath that we take, We have a choice. We can either fill this earth with the glory and beauty of pronouncing God's name as it should be, or we take a breath and we pull all of the glory and beauty out of God's name by using it as a curse word or by saying wrong things about him or by living wrongly in association with his name. And as I was thinking about this this week, I realized that there's really only two things that we can do to keep ourselves from becoming completely paralyzed in fear of this command. On the one, the one hand, we can continue in self-justification. We can gloss over the ways that we've perhaps failed in this way and, and narrow down our categories. So this command only means very specific things. And that kind of solution would, would maybe get us through another couple weeks, maybe another couple years. But eventually, there's going to be a bill come due that we cannot pay with our self-justification. We will be unable to carry the weight of this command. Our other option is to be set free from emptiness. It's to have liberty from vanity. You see, the third commandment isn't just a loaded gun that's desiring to hold us down and paralyze us. The loaded gun part is pointed at our self-righteousness. It's pointed at our self-justification. It's pointed at the part of us that has to die in order to be set free, in order to embrace the liberty that we have been called to in God's name. And this liberty is only available in Jesus. The name of Jesus is what has the power to set us free from vanity. The third commandment is on on the one hand a reminder 
of our inadequacy before God. We are such selfish, confused creatures. How could we hope to speak and live in such a way that upholds the name of God properly? On the other hand, the third commandment is an invitation to be set free from the emptiness of the ever-elusive search for self-fulfillment. The strangest part of this whole idea of being set free from this vanity is that the beauty of the gospel is paradoxical. We're being set free from emptiness because Jesus emptied himself in order to liberate us. We could say it even more awkwardly and say that, in a sense, Jesus veined his own name as God of the universe and took on the name of a servant. Jesus took on pain and destruction and death in order that we might be able to lift up his name in joy and in freedom. We are removed from naked fear. This command does cause us fear, right? It should. And yet when we see Jesus, when the gospel actually apprehends our hearts, we are removed from just naked fear and we're placed in a posture of humble reliance. Jesus is the only person who has ever lived that has fulfilled this command perfectly. We're told in the Gospel of John that Jesus said what he heard his father saying. Jesus did what he saw his father doing. He lived out this command perfectly for us. If you're a part of the church, I invite you to embrace the power and liberty of this command. The name of Jesus is a name that is full of power and grace and love. His name is the name of salvation. And when we understand who he is, when we start to grasp his name, it shapes our picture of him. He's called the mighty counselor. If you're one of his people, he's not just a good friend that you can go to when things get too, too messed up, too bad for you to figure out on your own. He's the first person you turn to. He's the wonderful counselor. And he's also called the mighty God. He's not a morality banker that you go to when you feel like your account is maybe getting a little too low. He's the one who has done everything for you. He's in charge of the entire universe. He's called the Prince of Peace. He's not some genie that we can capriciously ask to bless our snipers at the expense of other people's lives based on some religious or ethnic or national boundary. He is the universal king of peace. He is the king of all things, and we are to live in humble reliance. We rely on Jesus. We allow his spirit to work within us. If you're a part of the church, then his spirit is alive within you, and so that your words and your actions will always come in more conformity to his so that you will be able to say like him, I see what my God is doing and I do what he does. I hear what he says and I say it. That's what the Spirit is working in and among you, so that you can lift up the name of Jesus as it should be. And if you're still on the outside of the church, if you've yet to admit that your efforts at self-justification really aren't working, I invite you to consider that you're actually making a faith claim. You're expressing faith in the idea that Jesus' name is empty and meaningless, and powerless. And I would invite you, reconsider that belief. Reconsider who Jesus is. Allow him to confront you. Allow him to free you from emptiness 
and place his name upon you. Don't misuse God. Let him love you. Let the truth of the gospel sink in, and this commandment will be a natural joy to us. We will be set free from meaninglessness, free from vanity, and we will find all of our meaning in the love of Jesus. Let's pray together. Jesus, if you had not humbled yourself and emptied yourself, our lives would be full of vanity. Would you forgive those of us that are part of your church who have limited this command to make ourselves feel better and in so doing we have broken this command by by attempting to justify ourselves. Jesus, we need you. We cannot hope to lift up your name as it should be lifted up without the power of your spirit. And so as we come to your table, would you renew our hearts? Would you give us a fresh glimpse of your love? And may we leave this place as people that are filled with your name, filled with your love, going out to lift it up in truth and in joy. We pray this because of your name, the power of your name to save us. Amen.